Well, I'm growingly, you know, and for those of you who've had conversations with me within the last, you know, even just three to six months, you'll know it won't come as a surprise. I'm growingly concerned about Christians in the West, about the direction of Christianity in the Western world. And part of the reason I'm concerned now is because I think we're living kind of the lost chapter from Screwtape, in which we are currently so distracted by things that Christians can, of course, in good conscience, disagree on. Things that maybe come up once every hundred years in the life of a society and church in which people are honestly trying to do their best to assess the best way to respond to something. And yet we take on such fierce, polarizing views about a manner from within the life of the church that in this case I truly believe will be here for a moment and gone tomorrow. And so there are things as a pastor that you just really won't hear me talk about much. And the reason I'm silent on them is convictional. You're not going to really hear me say much about vaccines or masks. And the reason I don't is because it's convictional. I, I, I won't address those things here because I believe it to be a major distraction from things that are really pressing in against us, that, that are really meaningful, and that are really uh, creeping in in ways that um, pose much more of a threat to the life of the church than many of these things. And so this morning... Our sermon, you know, I was studying through the Psalms. Ending book three and coming into book four was presented with this opportunity to share, I think, something that is on my heart, but something that's on my heart for you and something that's on my heart for us as we, you know, journey together as a young church. But as I do that, this is a significant time, I think. And, and so let me ask ahead of time. This is going to be a little bit of a longer sermon than usual. We're not going to be here through lunch. A little bit longer than usual. Normally what I would do is I would make a lot of cuts and edits, and I have. But I think what's here is what we need to hear. I want to be pastoral. I want to speak truth. I want to do it lovingly. Right? But I also... Part of, part of being loving is speaking truth. And so... We need to pray um, now at the front end. So, Lord, I pray for that. I pray that you'd make me truthful. I pray that you'd um, give me a posture of gentleness, but also firmness as we open your word and, and think through some of these things together. What we pray, God, is that you, your spirit would be here. And I pray that, uh, Lord, you would be speaking through me. The spirit of God, speak through your word this morning as I speak it, uh, that we might hear and believe that we might be helped, that we might be shepherded, that I might be shepherded by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over the last few years, a rising number of well-known, Gen X, middle-aged evangelicals have publicly announced that they were on a journey of deconstructing their Christian beliefs. Okay. Two years ago, at the end of his journey, or you know, at the end of the first stage of his journey, I think he would say. A well-known author and pastor said he couldn't be intellectually honest anymore and still call himself a Christian. I wasn't necessarily surprised to hear this because I'd been following his sad journey for years. 
I'd been reading, I'd been listening, and I knew that this was the trajectory that things were heading on. But this pastor in particular had preached a series. I mean, it was, it was deeply saddening to me. He had preached a series on 1 Corinthians that I listened to actually several times through as a young man after seminary in my mid-20s. And so to think, it was very impactful to me about the gospel and the way the gospel interacts with the world and the way that the gospel interacts with church life. You know, it's very meaningful. And so now to think that this pastor no longer even believed that the gospel, in the gospel that Paul proclaimed in Corinth, it was a tough pill to swallow, but as his public comments grew more and more, from my perspective, hostile toward Christianity, it once again didn't surprise me that he recently announced that he would take his journey a step further than other Gen X, middle-aged, former evangelicals who who deconstructed their Christian faith, he decided to put together what he called a deconstruction starter pack. It's not my sarcasm there. I'm trying to do him justice. That's his words. That if you gave him $275, he would lead you through a course that helps you change or move away from your former childhood beliefs, Christian beliefs, um, and now construct new and better beliefs. Now, very recently, he pulled the course but not because the inherent problems associated with essentially marketing his new religion. That's what he was doing. Not because of criticisms that were coming from evangelicals and Christians and and friends from his Christian life who were saying, whoa, man, this this is a whole new level in which you're leading people away and you're profiting from it. But actually... He pulled it because he didn't get permission from the resources he'd borrowed to put their work alongside of his public course. And he was hearing criticism on the other side saying, you're, just because you're a public, leader, uh, public figure doesn't mean you're an expert in deconstruction. And so he pulled it. But I wasn't, I was pretty disappointed. I was disappointed even more these last two weeks to hear this pastor interviewed by a new podcast series hosted by Christianity Today that's become really popular recently that started out really strong and that, as it's continued, has just really grown in, in, there's a particular ideology that's framing now the discussion, but they interviewed this pastor. And they described the podcast episode this way. They said, in this bonus episode, we'll explore Josh's story. We'll talk about faith, doubt, celebrity, and discuss how Christians might think of their own doubts and deconstruction, recognizing it as a normal part of the Christian life. Being generous, okay, I think I understand the intent behind communicating it this way. But I do want to begin our time this morning by saying that this embrace of, and we'll talk about what it means, but deconstruction as a normal thing from within the life of an evangelical Christian from within the life of orthodox, historically orthodox Christians, those who believe what Christians have believed for 2,000 years about the gospel, those who believe in the gospel of Christ, okay? The idea that deconstruction is normal, embracing it is normal, it's a big problem, you guys. It's a big problem. Deconstruction, the way that it's talked about today, is routinely leading people down an end that is resulting, and I'm saying across the board, it's resulting um, enormously in 
uh, marriages that uh, marital and familial abandonment, especially when a couple goes down deconstruction, the deconstruction road together, and the wife sees the sad reality that now destruct. Usually, this is how it's been. The wife sees the sad reality that deconstruction afforded her husband a worldview that encouraged him to abandon his marriage. It's like when we when we said love is love. And when we adopted this kind of new deconstruction of Christian ethics, I didn't realize you were going to use that as a way to then love someone else and leave me and leave your family. But this is the road that it's putting us on routinely. It's ending in children being estranged from parents. It's ending in churches being torn apart. People essentially abandoning all spiritual authority. It's problematic. Quoted by Newsweek, world-renowned historian and Professor of Biblical Studies Carl Truman, I think a voice of reason in this, uh, said that this isn't really a new phenomenon as much as it's being sold with a new veneer, right? Truman commented, in time immemorial, so forever, you know, in the past, people have lost their faith. Ever since the beginning of Christianity, people have lost their faith. He says it's interesting because now it's used with this pseudo-intellectual language of deconstruction in order to describe it. It's old thinking packed in a trendy postmodern language. From Truman's perspective, deconstruction is synonymous with losing your faith, abandoning the scriptures, abandoning Christ. So what is deconstruction? Let's take a step back and ask that. I told you we'd get here. Uh, it's important. If you spent any time at all, don't worry if you didn't, studying philosophy in undergrad or grad school, you're familiar at least a little bit with the work of a, of the guy, a guy by the name of Jacques Derrida. Okay, and Derrida is an Algerian-born French philosopher who um, essentially is best known for developing a, li- a literary analysis known as deconstruction, which was his way of approaching the relationship between text and meaning. Now listen to me, listen to me. He's one of the fathers of postmodernism, so like, my definition of deconstruction is going to be a little hairy because whenever you're trying to, to define a term from a postmodernist, it's a little bit like nailing jello to the wall. Nevertheless, we have to try. You know, this isn't going to be super nuanced. We have to get down to kind of the, where the rubber meets the road on this. I think that's fair, and I think that's what we need to do. Uh, but this is one, so, so it's his way of approaching the relationship between text and meaning. It's, it's one of the reasons he's seen as... as one of the fathers, along with Foucault, of postmodern thought. His work centers around the idea that language and meaning are often inadequate tools for determining what something truly means. Okay, he rejected the idea that literary work has a stable or closed meaning or a center around which the rest of the work revolves. Okay, so my sermon... What's written here, the text that we find here, there's no stable or, or uh, center meaning that, that you're meant to sort of hear. It's, it's up to the hearer and the signs or signals through which you might filter these words. Now, for that reason, Derrida would obviously say that deconstruction is incompatible with historically orthodox Christianity the way that I would describe it to him. Right? He would say, I mean, if you listen to him, he would say, actually, if you look at the history of Christian thought, if you look at the Bible, Judeo-Christianity is rich with deconstruction. There's a rich tradition of deconstruction, but what he means is there are times when 
when, you know, Jesus says, you've heard it say, but now I say to you. He's deconstructing his former beliefs and moving. No, no, he look at the Reformation and say the same thing. No, no, in all of these examples, it's actually the Pharisees who deconstructed. And Jesus is just going back to what was originally said. You know, it's others who deconstructed, and the reformers came back and said, no, we need to go back to the gospel. We need to reform back to what the Apostle Paul was telling us, not build on something new, right? So Derrida would obviously say that deconstruction uh, is incompatible with Christian belief, the way that I'm describing it, because we believe that Jesus' words about himself are stable. They have a center. It's called the gospel. We believe that, that the word is adequate for expressing meaning, and just from a purely logical standpoint, language has to be able to express itself that way. Or we couldn't have conversation. If you and I were talking after church, we would be uh, speaking nonsense to one another. If neither one of us in our sentences had a stable, centric meaning that we were trying to communicate. I mean, listen, the big problem with Derrida's work is that if language is not an adequate tool for determining what someone means, and instead it's the experience of the hearer and the signs that he's hearing that changes the meaning or deconstructs an original author's work to something else entirely, well, guess whose work that also applies to? There it is. And so someone could have had coffee with him in the late 1900s after he made a vigorous presentation on deconstruction, and they could have said to him, you know what I hear you saying? I hear you, I hear you saying through my signs that language is a great tool for determining meaning. And that everyone has a center, a central focus or sphere of meaning at the center of what they're trying to communicate. And he'd say, no, 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 no. That's not at all what I'm saying. Actually, I'm saying the opposite. And you could just ask, so, so you're saying that your writing and words have a stable meaning that you want others to understand? That you're specifically trying to communicate? I mean, of course they do. Of course they do. They have to. This is what makes the idea of deconstruction and postmodernism so silly. Nobody lives their life this way. If you get a bill in the mail from, a, from somebody that you owe a lot of money to, it says, if you don't pay by this date, we have the right to come and, and uh, take your house or foreclose. When that happens, you can't go to court with deconstruction as your defense. Say, well, when I read that through my signs, no, the court of law will not... Uh, deconstruction will not be any help to you there. You will owe the money. That's how it works, right? Um, but listen, progressively leaning or progressively moving evangelicals, they don't really seem to care about the inconsistencies of deconstruction. I, I, I don't know why there's not a concern about the lack of logic. They don't seem to understand also how logic has been used from within philosophy. When it's talked about today, it's used as a way of leaving behind the Christian views of your childhood and moving on to something different. It reminds me of the embrace of other theories about which I guarantee you the original sources would say, of course they're completely at odds with Christian thought the way that you're describing it. Of course they are. But for some reason, we've been, and, and evangelicals, we've been doing it for decades now. For some reason, we can't help ourselves, but we love, I've said it before, we love to show up to the party with this posture of faux coolness, the pipe and the latte in hand as people who started the party are taking the streamers down and shaking their heads saying, wow, they don't even know what this means. We, we do this. And, and so, we have to ask, why is deconstruction all the rage today among young Christians? Why are we abandoning uh, the Bible? Why are we walking away from truth? Why are we instead embracing this new thing? Well, that's a series in and of itself. You know, and, and we don't have time for a super nuanced talk on why I think we're moving in this direction in which everybody's deconstructing, deconstructing, deconstructing. Maybe we'll get into it in a, in a more in-depth 
way in one of our theology nights together that we'll start having this fall on Sunday nights where we deal with another topic and how the scriptures address that, that issue. But for now, I think what I'd like to do is say there's a lot of factors, but most of them have to do with how Christians deal with their doubts and questions. And, and listen, many of the questions and doubts that we have are legitimate. They should be acknowledged and they should be addressed. And I want you to hear me say that. We have to deal with them. We have to deal with our doubts. We have to deal with our questions. And we'll talk more about that. But how we deal with them matters. And so there are two factors related to how we deal with them that I'll touch on this morning that I do think leads to deconstruction right now uniquely. That Psalm 93 also uniquely speaks to. I think it addresses both. First, there's been a growing overemphasis on self. I believe, from within the Western church. That's troublesome, that's bothering, bothersome, and that I think is unique when you look at Christians and how they deal with their problems and struggles and troubles from within Christian history moving backwards. Okay? It's unique in our time. Eyes are on self. Okay? People have doubts. They have questions. That's, that's, that is normal. It's normal for Christians to go through seasons of doubt. We'll talk about that. They have these doubts and questions, but now they're often conditioned or even taught outright to process those questions through the lens of their own woundedness and trauma. Now listen to me. I want you to hear me say this because it's very important. Woundedness and trauma are real. The church needs to come alongside of the wounded and traumatized, offer help, hope, and support. And I hope that if you know me and if you know the elders at Gospel Life Church, You'll know that that is our heart for this church and for the people in our community without question. And at the very same time, we need to say, woundedness and trauma are not 20th and 21st century phenomena. They're not. In other words, what kinds of trauma do we think Christians in the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century faced? What kind of trauma do we think they faced uh, in Corinth with the kind of unhealthy and abusive leadership that Paul describes there? Abusive leadership from within the church isn't some new experience. What kind of trauma and woundedness do you think they faced when they were slaughtered at the hands of Greek and Roman persecution, which we'll talk about in Revelation? What kind of trauma do you think Christians faced during schism and reformation when churches were being torn apart and the average lifespan was like 27 years old? Life was hard. See, it's not minimizing trauma today to say that throughout the ages, everyone has experienced it. Quite the opposite. I think what's happening is currently we're seeing a movement that minimizes the trauma of past Christians. I don't think it allows us to hear their voice well. I don't think it, it's honoring to them. I think we're minimizing the trauma of the past and we make it seem like, well, yeah, historical Christianity was fine for those people, but they weren't so wounded as us. Really? They weren't so traumatized. Their Christian faith was able to be sustained because it wasn't seen as so contrary to culture and there wasn't such abuses in power. I think that's complete nonsense. I think that the kinds of abuses, which are horrible, that we have today were present through all of Christian history. So I think that, and even more so, I think life, life was very hard in unique ways for early Christians. And so the, different, the difference is, how are we dealing with it? I think the reason that this movement is a wrong-headed overemphasis on self, where my eyes are mostly focused on me versus my eyes, as we'll see in the text, somewhere else entirely. I think that's the, the primary reason 
for it. As an aside, at least one problem with that is that the language of trauma today, I think, gets minimized. Listen to me. When everything is trauma, nothing is. When the word refers to everything, then the word now is meaningless. And I'm telling you as a pastor, we need trauma to mean something because our people, our parishioners, our friends and neighbors legitimately have trauma. Okay? Um, but that's, that's, that's self-focus. That's self-focus, our, our eyes in. And by the way, I, I get caught up in this too. It's so easy for us to uh, primarily focus on self, self, self. See how we're victimized or, or wounded. But that self-focus is at least one of the factors leading to deconstruction. A second factor in dealing with our questions is that even, if, even as we have these legitimate questions about our faith, legitimate groanings and seasons of doubt that are normal in the Christian experience, rather than dealing with them with an openness to the idea that the decrees of God are actually greater than the decrees of man, we often deal with them by deconstructing the Christian God, peeling away this meaning that we've been told uh, in the scriptures of this Christian God after whose image we're made, and then we reconstruct a God who's made in our image. So we've talked about this before, but wouldn't you know, in all of these instances that I'm talking to you about in which there's been deconstruction and reconstruction from within these well-known Christian leaders, do you want to know what the reconstructed God looks like? Wouldn't you know, he looks a lot like me. He looks like me. He's, he thinks like me. He's not bothered by the things that bother me. Wouldn't you know? He seems to get super annoyed and bring judgment to bear to the things that I hate or annoy me. Let me tell you, he absolutely loves my Twitter feed. If my reconstructed God had a Twitter feed, it would basically be my Twitter feed. And this God also tends to speak out against clarity in his word. And, you know, just coincidentally, again, his views don't get you into any trouble with surrounding culture at all. You get a lot of pats on the back and accolades. You get a lot of support. Nobody thinks you're weird. Nobody gives you any trouble when you follow this God. And so I deal with those questions through this self-absorbed, eyes-in, self-consoling kind of way. Or I deal with them in a way that reconstructs God after my image so that I don't really have any challenge, right, to who, uh, to who I am. I can continue however I, I want. So how does the psalm address what a believer should do with his questions and doubts? Well, uh, this psalm in particular, Psalm 93, addresses it. Here, because here we receive the resounding answer from the scriptures related to our deepest questions and skepticisms and doubts. In verse 1, first three words. So if you have your Bible in front of you, Psalm 93, and would you please set your eyes with me on verse 1. And look at these first three words. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Psalm 93, you see, is found at the beginning of the of book 4 of the Psalms. And the way that the Psalms are structured, structured matters to the meaning of the Psalms, all right? Uh, Book 4 starts at at Psalm 90. And what we have to understand is that Book 3 of the Psalms ends this way. It ends with these doubts and questions that the people of Israel had during exile. All right, so God's people during exile, they'd been displaced from the land in which they were living. Their enemies appear to be thriving. And they don't appear to have any hope for themselves to return to their land. The Davidic dynasty, 
that at one point in time had brought them so much hope that was pointing to some kind of future kingdom has been suspended. And so Psalm 89 ends, book 3 of the Psalms ends with a series of questions starting in verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David? The psalmist is saying, I'm examining your statutes. I'm examining your word. I'm examining how you've revealed yourself. And I'm examining my surroundings. And I'm seeing something that's disjointed. It's not making sense to me. I have these questions, and they're real questions, and they're serious questions. And really what they are are five questions from the people of Israel, that they're legitimately struggling with, crying out to the Lord. In Psalm 89, here are the five questions. How long will God's wrath keep going? How long will it continue? First of all. Second, does God understand humanity? Does he even understand? Does he understand how frail his people are? Remember how short my life is? For what vanity have you created the children of man? What man can live and never see death? So does he understand how frail his people are, how much grace they're in need of. Number three, is, it true, is God true to his nature? Is he really true to his nature of justice? Is he really true to his nature of righteousness and unfailing love and faithfulness? Is that actually a thing as I read about in, in the scriptures? Number four, is God just in, take, in not taking vengeance against those who harm his people? And then finally, five... Do these questions, do these problems that uh, his people see when they look at what's happening in the world around them, are they insurmountable for God? Does the fact that God's people have these questions and doubts somehow mean that God is false? Does it undermine him? Those are the five questions we see at the end of book three. And these are the actual questions that Israel has in exile. And even as God's people find themselves in a kind of exile today, wrestling with all kinds of questions and doubts, the fourth book of Psalms shows us how the scriptures as a whole, it's like a microcosm of how the scriptures as a whole deals with these questions. It's, it's essentially uh, the songs that Israel would sing as an answer to these questions. Rather than allowing us simply to wallow in doubt, Rather than providing a forum that just offers more questions than answers, rather than telling people that, look, deconstruction is just a normal way to deal with your questions, the author ends Psalm 89 with doxology, not deconstruction, and the two things couldn't be more different. Psalm 89 ends with doxology, an expression of praise and confidence in the way that the Lord has revealed himself. It literally ends with the words, right after the questions are asked, right after this crying out and this longing, the psalmist says, blessed be the Lord. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of the scriptures forever. Amen and amen. For some reason, many of us in the Western church today have moved from doxology as the appropriate response to our questions to deconstruction in which we try to strip away the meaning that we don't like and replace it with something else. But when we enter into this fourth book, we see why chapter 89 can end this way with doxology. We see why. We see why because we think, how can the psalmist have doubt and be confident in the Lord? I think 
we've been led to believe that confidence in the Lord and doubts and questions are mutually exclusive. And according to the Psalms, they're not. Because routinely, this is what you find in the Psalms, questions and doubts followed by statements of assurance and confidence. But how is that possible? Well, one of the repeated themes related to why we can trust, why we can have confidence in the midst of doubt. One of the answers that the psalmist holds out to the questions God's people continually face is found right here in Psalm 93. The question posed by book 3 is essentially this. At the end of book 3, why do we continue to trust in the Lord and how he has revealed himself to us in the midst of exile? Like, how does that lead us to end in confident worship? And we see the answer to this question in many ways in, you know, the next 16 psalms. But we'll focus in here. And we'll see the answer to this question in four stages. Starting way out at 30,000 feet with the big answer to these questions and then zooming in slightly each time to give the answer more and more clarity and less and less ambiguity so we can really see how it works. Okay, so the first stage, the big answer to this question from 30,000 feet is this. The Lord reigns. The first part of verse 1, look there with me. The Lord reigns, he's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he's put strength on his belt. So this is a clear statement regarding two things. Who rules and who doesn't rule, as we'll see in a moment. So the psalmist is really interested in drawing distinctions here. It's not mankind who's robed in majesty to begin with. It's not you in the passage who's robed with majesty. It's not me who is robed with ma- majesty. Initially, that is not the first place we set our eyes. And so we begin to see that the posture the psalmist has is not a posture that's eyes in and self-focused, but rather it, it starts with the Lord. It doesn't start with him. The psalmist's answers to these questions don't begin with, this is what I'm facing. They begin with, this is who God is. And this is what he's done. And so, his reign is what we see here. And his reign is clearly seen in creation. All authority is ascribed to the Lord. He's the one who rules. It's not surrounding pagan teachings that have any kind of authority and weight. The surrounding pagan teachings of the day of uh, chaos, primordial forces, uh, and, and other issues, random happenings that were taught by paganism of the day. That has no kind of weight and authority at all. All authority is ascribed to the Lord. His reign is seen clearly in creation. His reign is seen clearly in acts of redemption. And so robes of majesty is simply a way of saying that. Saying that all of the works of God are glorious. Everything he does. They reveal his nature. They reveal who he is. So when we zoom all the way out, we come to find that we can utter the same doxology that the psalmist does at the end of his nagging questions and doubts when we recognize that the Lord is ruling and on his throne even when we don't understand why the word says what it says. And there are going to be times when we don't understand. Even when we're pressed in by a surrounding culture that pounds away saying that can't possibly be true. All of those moments, we can have, we can have assurance, confidence, that even in the midst of my, un, my lack of understanding, God is still on his throne. The term Lord or Yahweh is given an emphatic position in the text in order to make sure the reader is not confused about the reality that it's the Lord and the Lord alone who reigns. We are not co-reigners or reigners over him. We're not the ones who decide to stand as judge over him. Examining for ourselves and say, okay, well, let me, let me deconstruct this. Let me 
see which parts are, are, are good and not good. And so when we get, you know, when we get to the very end, and we're going to see this this fall and winter, when we get to the very end at the marriage supper of the Lamb, after coming through so much, yes, trauma and turmoil, the people of God will praise. But it will not be a deconstructed God whose praises emerge out of the darkness. But rather, this is the proclamation that Revelation 19 gives us. This is the This is the proclamation in Revelation 19 that serves as the answer to our questions, our deepest doubts and and fears in the end. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Like the roaring of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Doxology. Not deconstruction flowing out of the reality that God is the one who rules. Do we really believe that is the question. And yet when we zoom in a little bit closer, we we get more clarity related to what I mean by that. Related to the nature of God's reign. So we see first this proclamation that the Lord reigns. And now we see where he reigns. So he reigns over everything. But specifically he reigns over all the earth. So the Lord reigns. Number two, the Lord reigns over all the earth. Second part of verse 1 through verse 2. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established uh, from of old. You are from everlasting. At the moment of creation, God established his rule on the earth because he established the earth. He's the only one who established the world and so nothing will undermine his rule here. Nothing can keep him from ruling because he's creator. We're creation. This is the doctrine of of creator God. Now this obviously doesn't mean that there won't be sin. It obviously doesn't mean that there won't be raging against him. We'll get to that. Certainly we've seen throughout Genesis and even in the Psalms so far that many will rage against his rule. But his rule over all the earth stands. It can't be thwarted. It won't fail. His throne is established on the earth that he established. He's a God from all eternity, eternally preexistent, ruling an earth that is not from all eternity, that had a beginning, that was created by his own hand. So the doctrine of the creator God tells us that everything that is not God was created by God, creator creation, and so, therefore, he rules over it. And with that brings us now, thirdly, as we zoom in a little bit closer, from the triune God to the earth that he created, to now the nations that inhabit that earth, the peoples who inhabit it. The Lord reigns, the Lord reigns over all the earth, and now the Lord reigns over the inhabitants of the earth. Another way of saying it is the Lord reigns over all the nations. Look at verses 3 and 4. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Now you might read verses 3 and 4 and say, what did that have to do with the nations? Heard a lot about floods. You know, and thunders of many waters. What about, where are these nations? Where's all of humanity? Well, listen, um, actually, verses 3 and 4 serve as the psalmist's answer to some of these questions related to those who are bringing harm to God's people at the end of chapter 89. Because throughout the Old Testament, we come to find that the seas, the waters, the floods, the rivers, they largely represent two major themes that are intertwined, chaos and nations. 
And we don't have to choose between them because the chaos in question is actually caused by the sin of the nations, by those who've rejected God, by those who've set themselves up as God and decided that they could do a better job of being God than him. God is mightier than that, though, according to this text. He doesn't operate this way anywhere in the scriptures where he decides to acquiesce to the nations. And that as they pound against him and the waters pound against him, he kind of decides to erode back. Like, oh, you don't want me to look quite like that? I'll just kind of, okay, I'll give there. Oh, you don't, you don't like that part about me? That was a little rough. That was a rough patch on on me, sorry about that. Yep, just a, as you pound away, make some shape me. God, God's just saying, deconstruct and reshape me. That's just not how he operates. He doesn't decide, to, he doesn't throw up his hands related to his decrees, as we'll see in a moment. He doesn't throw up his, his hands related to the doctrine of God. He established his throne on earth because he established the earth because he alone is God. And so no creation on the earth gets to be the ones who decide for themselves what's good and bad, wise and foolish. They don't get to be the ones who decide the definition of justice and righteousness because God is that definition. And so the idea from the psalmist here is that the waters have lifted up. In other words, the surrounding world, all of us, okay, have, have come against the Lord and pound against him with great force, bringing great destruction on the earth in its wake. Some of that destruction I talked about in the introduction that does have real consequences in this life that are bad and harmful and, and painful. So that there is destruction, but the Lord is mightier than the raging. The Lord does not bend. The Lord is mightier than all the, the attempted deconstruction. The Lord is not subject to the power of the seas. Do you want to know why? Because he created the seas, you guys. In other words, though, it's, though the nations rage, as Luke says in Acts 2, and as uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 14, though the nations rage and the people's plot, they do so in vain because the Lord who rules is actually ruling through their raging to accomplish his purposes. It's futile. They rage against the Lord, but a sovereign God reigns through their raging. And he will accomplish his purposes, and there's no way around this. And so it brings us finally then to verse 5, the ground level. Which is, okay, right, the Lord reigns. He reigns over all the earth. He reigns over then all the inhabitants of the earth, corporately, all of us. Now the Lord reigns over you as a trustworthy king. He reigns over you individually. He reigns over me individually right the triune god all of creation the nations corporately and you individually if all of this is true you know if it's the lord who reigns and if he reigns over the earth because he's the creator of the earth and nothing that has being would even have being apart from him and if he therefore reigns over the nations of the earth and even when the nations rage against him he reigns through that he must reign over you he must reign over me and that means that what he says goes it means that the inclinations that we might have to, to reject God's words in favor of our own words or to deconstruct them into a new meaning that no Christian has held for 2,000 years, for, two, for nearly two millennia, but suddenly that's what the Word of God means to you. Those inclinations are not Christian inclinations. That's not Christianity. That runs counter to the Scripture's command on how you deal with your doubts. Why? Well, look at verse 5. Your decrees are very trustworthy. That's Christianity. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Another proclamation of confidence in the Lord despite the doubts. 
Again, as the psalmist continues to provide answers to the struggling follower of God in Psalm 89, he ends in an affirmation of trust in what he's learned about God from his word, not a rejection of it in favor of something more contemporary and new and trendy. And here at the end of chapter 93, we can see at least part of the answer as to why that's the case. What he says is trustworthy and true. What he says is trustworthy and true. He's given us his decrees. That can also be translated statutes. A word that the psalmist will use 13 times in 119. A word that the, that's, okay, when I say the psalmist, I realize that there are multiple psalmists here. I'm using it as shorthand for whoever authors a particular psalm. But throughout the psalms, throughout the scriptures, when we read God's statutes, never is there ever even a hint of deconstructing those statutes as normal but rather a trust in them. The psalmist says repeatedly, teach me your statutes. I will learn to delight in your statutes. Teach me your statutes. I will not forget your statutes. I will remember your your statutes when they're hard to remember. These statutes are shorthand for his revelation, the news that Israel's been granted this covenantal relationship with God, that they're in covenant with him through his work and not their work, that he's revealed himself to them on the pages of Scripture. So you might be saying, How is any of that possible, though? Because what if my doubt is surrounding the very things that you're saying? Well, just believe this. You know, like, what if I'm doubting that God reigns? And that he, or what if I'm doubting that his reign is good? Like, that he rules and reigns over me, but his reign is good. What if I'm doubting that? Right? And just force myself to believe it? Just turn it on like a light switch? Like, How is it possible to come to believe and trust? How is it possible to have assurance? How is it possible to have confidence in the midst of our doubt and longing that God not only rules, but his rule is good and trustworthy? How is it possible that when we find out in the scriptures, as Pete told us the very first week, right, that we can never live according to his statutes? We can't. No one has perfectly lived according to his statutes except for one man. And as I reiterated, no one does good, not even one. No one seeks for God. So if that's the case, how could God's holiness dwell within his people forever? As is echoed here in verse 5. Well, as a professor from my alma mater, William Van Gameren writes this. He says, God's promises in Psalm 93 extend to all time. These promises that are meant to assure the heart of those who are doubting and questioning at the end of 89. Those promises extend to all time. He says, this was confirmed in Jesus Christ, by whom the covenant was renewed and in whom was the presence of God. Emmanuel equals God with us. We have God with us as believers in Jesus. This is pointing forward to Christ. It's pointing forward to our union with him. It's pointing forward to the reality that this God who reigns goes with us. That changes everything. In other words, while it's true that the waters have lifted up and the surrounding world has come against the Lord and pounds against him with great force, and while it's true that the Lord is mightier than the raging, he demonstrated his might by stepping into that storm, by stepping into those seas and calming it for those who would trust in him. Tim Keller writes this of Psalm 93. He says, the, seas, the sea, during the time of ancient Israel, was feared as the source of chaos and the habitat of monsters, but God's rule is absolute over all such forces. It is for this reason that we should obey his word and put on holiness in his presence. But God's holiness is more threatening than the stormy sea 
How can we stand before a holy God? Jesus' stilling of the storm in Mark 4, 35-41 is a sign of his triumph over the ultimate chaos of sin that chapter 93 is talking about. His death on the cross is that final triumph. See, it's precisely because that we could never save ourselves, that we realize that we could never do this on our own, that the believer is called to a life of faith. That's what this is, right? A believer is called to believe these things by faith, but we're given Jesus so that we're able to have this faith. We know we can't do it, and so we throw ourselves on the mercies of God, and we cry out. Of course we cry out in faith. So the believer is called to a life of faith. But listen to me. It's not the kind of faith that neglects questions and doubts. So the question is, what should we do? You know, as modeled by the Psalms, as taught in the Psalms, as reflected throughout the Scriptures, what should we do when we experience doubts? Because I will say, listen to me, seasons of doubt, those are normal in the Christian experience. I'm not saying that every single person will have them. I'm certainly not saying that if you've never had doubt, you're doing something wrong. But I am saying that seasons of doubt are normal from within the Christian experience. They are. Wrestlings are normal. So what do we do when we get them? You know, if deconstruction is not normal, and it's not as we look at the scriptures, if it leads nowhere good because in the end God is an undeconstructible God, he doesn't operate that way, and you don't have authority to hold him out and kind of decide what parts you're going to peel back, you don't have the authority to say, well, this doesn't have a stable meaning, so I'm going to, you know, interpret it through my own lens. If that never ends anywhere good, that's true and it is, then what do we do with these questions? Well, here's a non-exhaustive list to close as modeled for us by the end of book three of the Psalms and the beginning of book four. And also, I think this is a microcosm of what we see throughout the scriptures. Number one, the psalmist, again, shorthand for whoever's writing a particular psalm, the psalmist acknowledges and brings his questions and doubts directly to God. First of all, what does it teach us to do with our questions and doubts? Acknowledge them. So this is a kind of a two-parter. Acknowledge them and bring them directly to God. The psalmist, listen, to you, listen, you guys. This first part's important. Acknowledging your doubts. The psalmist doesn't hold back his questions, you guys. The psalmist routinely looks into the world and, and cries out for all the things that he doesn't understand. But, but that brings us to the second part. He cries out to God. Psalm 93 speaks directly to that fifth question raised in chapter 89 about whether or not God is able to stand up to the scrutiny of our questions. Whether or not our questions somehow undermine his rule by exposing a weakness. And the answer according to 93 is no. They do not. And the reality is, if you don't deal with your doubt, your faith could collapse. If you don't deal with your doubt, you won't know how to answer the world. When they subject the gospel to scrutiny. And your own faith can be shaken. Now let me say this. One good starting place. The Reason for God by Tim Keller. I implore you. If, you're, if you wonder. like, What do I do with my questions? What do, I do, what do I do for your doubts? Man, this is a great starting place on how to handle your doubts and questions. And if you've read it already. I implore you. Read it again. Take notes. In this book, he writes this. He says, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. 
People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe what they believe will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of a tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse, and I want you to hear this, leaders of the church. I want you to hear this, members of Gospel Church. I want you to hear this, parents of kids and grandparents of kids. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she's failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Listen to me. We have a responsibility as leaders of the church to provide a a place where people can ask questions that they're wrestling with without getting their hands slapped down. And that can happen. And usually I think it happens because of insecurity related to the belief of the leadership. You know, do they really know the answers to these questions? And it's hard. So we slap legitimate questions down. Now, there's always a difference between legitimate questions and antagonizing. And sometimes those things can happen, and so you deal with them in discernment. But as people have legitimate questions, as people have crying out, as people have doubts, you need to have a place where they can ask those questions and deal with them. Because listen to me, a person's faith can collapse almost overnight if that doesn't happen. Parents and grandparents, hear me. It is our role to provide a space for our children to ask tough questions about their faith that they're wrestling with without them feeling like they get their hands slapped down. Why? Because a person's faith can collapse almost overnight if they've failed over the years to listen patiently to their own doubts. It's true. You know, I, I've had a friend who emailed me more recently, a few years ago, saying that, you know, when... He brought questions to his father about things that he was wrestling with in the scriptures. He would receive anger, short-temperedness, kind of like a blowing him off. And you just need to believe. And just very angry. Well, this young man, whose father was a church leader, he's now deconstructed his faith and walked away from the Christian faith entirely. It's unrecognizable when you compare it to the scriptures. Told this, this story of I didn't have space to do this. And oftentimes I think that's the case. We can either slap them down or we can give them overly glittering, stoic generalities. You know, we can have the stoicism that says, just believe, son, oh, you know, daughter, just believe, you know, it's going to be okay. We just, we're a family who believes. That's not going to be enough. That won't do it with our kids because they need to have this opportunity in which they wrestle with this with you. Get deep into the scriptures. Pray over them. Read the scriptures to them. Seek out answers to their questions. For sure, we're going to deal with that in a minute. Wise words from Keller, but doubt needs to be acknowledged. And the psalmist not only acknowledges the difficulty, but he brings them to the source. And we need to teach our kids and our people to bring your questions to the source. You know, and I always come back to it, but it's just so good. Jesus said it, so don't get mad at me for repeating it. A Sermon on the Mount, he always, be, he begins, Sermon on the Mount, he begins, uh, also his sermon in Luke. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who see like me. I, I, I don't know. I can't, I don't, I don't know any of this. I'm never going to know any of this. And so I, what's my natural response? I mourn. I cry out to God for this, right? We take it to the source. So, the psalmist acknowledges his questions and brings them before the Lord. Number two, the psalmist then searches and appeals to the scriptures for answers. So, we bring them to the Lord, but where has the Lord spoken? The Lord's spoken in his word. 
This idea that doubt in and of itself is somehow a virtue, a badge of honor for Christians to wear, just in and of itself, to be wallowed in, it's eating people alive in the church. It's no surprise that it ends in a departure from Christ because there's no seeking out of revelation of himself to us, no time reflecting on what I truly believe are the good and trustworthy answers we find to our doubts as we explore the scriptures. And this is why we find the constant appeal in the Psalms to the statutes. This is why we find even in our text this morning in verse 5, your decrees are very trustworthy. Go to the decrees of the Lord. So the psalmist acknowledges questions. Bring them before the Lord. Searches and appeals the scriptures for answers. Number three, the psalmist knows himself and is honest about his depravity. He's honest about his limitations. So if you enter into your doubts through a lens that sees yourself as someone who left to yourself will lead yourself to the truth, that you can do that, that you're actually someone who could judge the word rightly in that way, then you will position yourself as the judge over God's revelation then allowing him to stand as judge over you. There's no doubt. Listen, even in the psalmist's questions, even in all of his crying out, even in the pain that's so clearly present there, there isn't even an illusion of self-righteousness. And I cannot say the same for modern day deconstruction from within the church because I see self-righteousness all over that business. Instead, the psalmist approaches his questions and doubts with an understanding of his neediness, his poverty in spirit, his spiritual bankruptcy. The psalmist knows that he doesn't know the ways of God, that he never will in this life. Do we really believe that in our wrestling? I think it was Ben Arick once who was preaching at Andrew Riverside uh, for us at Gospel Life Church, and he said something along the lines of, if you wait till you have everything about God, all of your problems solved and everything figured out, you're just never going to believe. Because there are things about an infinite God that finite people aren't going to ever understand. So the psalmist knows himself and is honest about his limitations, his depravity, all of that. Four, then, the psalmist spends far more time doubting his doubts and questioning his questions than he does wallowing in his doubts and questions. Far more time doubting his doubts. So in other words, if you look at the psalms as a whole, yes, there are honest psalms. There are psalms where they're crying out, but sometimes, here's what I think we do as Christians, we pick out these and then we use them as an excuse to wallow in doubt. We take the the passages that do that and we say, see, the psalms do it. And you know what? You're right. The psalms do it, but you want to know what they do more? You want to know when you look at the book of Psalms that the people of Israel sang on their way to the temple, that the people of Israel sang in their daily liturgy. Do you want to know what it pronounces more? Far more does it list the many reasons that the psalmist's doubts are actually suspect and that the Lord is trustworthy. And we see that throughout the whole fourth book of Psalms, fourth book of the Psalms, which is meant to be an answer to those questions at the end of 89. So while Keller instructs believers to acknowledge their doubts, his his advice is the same for skeptics, right? Doubt your doubts. He says, but even as believers should learn to look for reasons behind their faith, skeptics must learn to look for a type of faith hidden within their reasoning. In other words, a lot of times skeptics like to say, well, I don't really have faith. Christians have faith. I just have reasoning. So I don't want to live a life of faith. And it's like, hold on, time out. No, what you have is faith. So Keller explains, he says, all doubts however skeptical and cynical they may seem, are really an alternate set of beliefs. Of course they are. You cannot doubt belief A except from a position of faith now in belief B. For example, if you doubt Christianity because there can't be just one true religion, you must recognize that this statement is itself an act of faith. 
No one can prove it empirically. It's not a universal truth that everyone accepts. If you went to the Middle East and said there can't be one true religion, nearly everyone would say, why not? The reason you doubt Christianity's belief, A, is because you hold to unprovable belief, B. Every doubt, therefore, is based on a leap of faith. The only way to doubt Christianity rightly and fairly is to discern your alternate belief under each of your beliefs and then ask yourself, what reason do you have for believing it? How do you know your belief is true? It would be inconsistent of you to require more justification for Christianity, for Christian belief, than you do for your own. But that is frequently what happens. And let me just say, yes, it is. Yes, it is. In fairness, he says, you must doubt your doubts. My thesis is that if you come to recognize the beliefs on which your doubts about Christianity are based, and if you seek as much proof for those beliefs as you seek from, Christ- from Christians for their beliefs you will discover that your doubts are not as solid as they first appeared. I think this is very true. Each doubt is a leap of faith, Keller says, and that faith is not as reasonable as the faith held out to you in the Scriptures. It doesn't have the kind of grounding that the Scriptures have. Well, what kind of faith is that that the Scriptures have? Well, that brings us to number five. The psalmist deals with doubts by ultimately pointing us forward to Christ. The psalmist deals with our doubts by pointing us to Jesus. He points to a forever king who will come and finally do all that is required that we should have done but failed to do. He will, he will put all the wrongs to rights. He will square up everything we don't understand. And we won't care in eternity about the, the, the concerns that we have now. All will be right in Jesus. And Jesus does this ultimately at the cross where he bears the penalty that we deserve that we might finally have life and truth, that we might finally have him, that he might finally go with us giving us the faith that we need. And this is why when Jesus deals with doubters, while he's patient with them and shows them grace, he also doesn't allow them to wallow in it. We've, we've talked about this before, but we see this. You know, he challenges doubters. He doesn't just leave them in it. It's trendy to leave people in their doubts. You know, it's trendy to say, oh, well, they just deconstructed, and who are you to say? No, listen. What does Jesus do when he, sees Tom, when he knows that Thomas has doubted him? When he appears back to the twelve, and the twelve have been talking about the resurrected Jesus. And some of the twelve haven't seen, but, but Thomas still just doesn't believe. How does he approach him? Does, does Jesus say, you didn't believe me. They, see, they all believe, you didn't believe, so you get out. You're not in here anymore. No, he doesn't shun him. But does he also just say, it's cool, man. Whatever you want to believe about me and my wounds is cool with me. You, you, do, you go on your journey, Thomas. He doesn't say that either. He doesn't discount him just because of his doubts, but he also does not let Thomas stay there. He doesn't. He says, come here. Feel this. This is who I am. This is the truth. Now, if you're going to reject me still, you're going to reject me still. If you're going to stumble over the stumbling block, so be it. But this is truth. When the man on the road says, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief, he does not say, whoa, 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 unbelief? I'm moving on to someone else. Thank you very much. He answers the prayer. He challenges. He doesn't let him stay there. He does help his unbelief. And so when we come to the table, we come with the realization. We come with the realization that he's the only one who can. 